You can turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 25. Genesis chapter 25. There is a, uh, an outline handout on the back table, and if you missed that, uh, don't be shy to uh, step up and grab one from the back. We'll be in Genesis 25, verses 1 through 28 today. And to introduce this text, I'd like you to think about low views of God. Low views of God. All sorts of people may approach this book of Genesis, which we've been walking through, um, with low views of God. Whether they're secular people or religious people, it doesn't matter. We all, because we are finite, we're creatures, we're so limited, and because we're fallen sinners, we all naturally start out with inferior views of God, which view him in far too lowly a way. Some people may approach Genesis thinking that, well, Abraham is God, on which Genesis focuses. Abraham is God was just a local God of Middle Eastern nomads, maybe the favorite God of the Hebrews. Perhaps the Hebrew slaves to whom Moses originally wrote this, that, that is the, the redeemed slaves who'd been rescued out of Egypt, perhaps they sometimes were tempted to think of their God in this way. He's our God for our little nation. But no, Genesis declares him from the very beginning the sovereign creator of heaven and earth. And of course, the next book by Moses, the book of Exodus, told how he was greater than all the gods of Egypt and he had rescued his people out of Egypt. But right from the beginning of Genesis, God is not some local favorite God of some one people. He's the God of earth and heaven. He's the maker of all things. Well, other people might have other low views of God. Some people may think that, well, yes, God made everything, but then he kind of steps back and he doesn't interfere too much in the natural processes of things. Now that the time of creation is over, and now that creation has fallen because of man's sin, does this creator God simply make the best of a bad situation? Does he just make do with the natural course of events? Maybe try to nudge them a certain direction as much as he can? No. Genesis declares that he is the God who supernaturally intervenes. He promised to intervene right after the fall of man, to intervene by redeeming sinners and crushing the serpent. He brought a worldwide flood upon the earth to wipe out evil. He rained fire and sulfur from heaven upon Sodom and its sister cities. And he caused Abraham and Sarah to conceive Isaac when their age made it naturally impossible. This God isn't limited by his creation. Well, other others may sort of assume, maybe even not realize they're assuming it, that maybe God, uh, well, he can do miracles, but maybe he will often just work according to human customs and expectations in various ways. But again, no, Genesis disabuses us of those thoughts. God chooses Isaac rather than the firstborn Ishmael in this account of Abraham's family. 
In our sermon text this morning, we'll continue to emphasize God's freedom to do as he pleases. He will confirm his covenant promises to Isaac, setting aside all Abraham's other sons. We'll find out there were several. And in answer to Isaac's prayers, God will again open a barren womb. And he will pronounce the destinies of Isaac's descendants before they're even born. That's the God that Genesis declares to us. So I think the big idea that we'll see in our text, or at least one big idea that I think we we should see as we draw it all together, is this. Abraham and Isaac's stories constantly discredit low views of their God. Sort of a broad theme, but I think you'll see it play out. Again, Abraham and Isaac's stories constantly discredit low views of their God. Let's look at the text, verses 1 through 28. We'll take it in sections, and then we'll apply it at the end. First of all, verses 1 through 11, we have the concluding account of Abraham's legacy. We've heard about Abraham having Isaac in his old age through Sarah when she was past the age for childbearing. We've heard about the ultimate test of Abraham's faith as God told him to offer up Isaac as a burnt offering, but then God provided a ram as a substitute, vividly picturing the gospel. We've seen that Isaac was provided, uh, wonderfully provided by God with a wife so that the promised seed line would not die out with Isaac. And now we are wrapping up the account of Abraham as it transitions just to focus on Isaac and his sons. So first of all, verses 1 through 11, the concluding account of Abraham's legacy. We'll read verses 1 through 6 first. Verses 1 through 6. Abraham took another wife, whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan fathered Sheba and Dedan. The sons of Dedan were Asherim, Latushim, and Lumim. The sons of Midian were Ephah, Ephir, Hanach, Abida, and Eldea. All these were the children of Keturah. Abraham gave all he had to Isaac. But to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac, eastward to the east country. So this first section of the concluding account of Abraham's legacy, verses 1 through 6, we see the separation of Abraham's heir from his other sons. Isaac is Abraham's sole heir. He gets the whole inheritance. And so there's a separation of Abraham's heir from his other sons. Says that Abraham took another wife. um, But the way Genesis is set up, especially in these sections... Often Moses is addressing things topically, not necessarily all chronologically. Um, so it could be that Keturah was a, a concubine, as it calls her later, a, a, a lesser wife of Abraham when Sarah was still alive. That seems most likely, based on Abraham's age. Um, but again, Keturah, his second concubine, Hagar had been the first. Uh, Keturah's children were not the seed of the promise, and therefore they're not mentioned until now. And the author, as uh, John Currid says, the author wants us to know that these offspring do not receive any inheritance. Only Isaac does. 
Abraham gave all he had to Isaac because in him all the promises of God are bound up. It is with Isaac that God's covenant will be, through which he will redeem humanity. But Abraham does. Uh, He is generous. He gives, uh, he lavishes gifts on his other sons, makes sure they're well provided for, and he sends them to the east of the promised land. Again, we'll get back to Ishmael, who was Abraham's firstborn by Hagar, the Egyptian. Uh, He comes up again later here. But um, it mentions six sons of Keturah, Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. And it names some of their descendants. As Andrew Steinman puts it, the land of the east where they were sent. The land of the east was a term for the land on the eastern fringes of Canaan and beyond into the Arabian desert. The peoples living there, including also the Moabites, Samanites, and Edomites, were often collectively called sons of the east in Hebrew. It's interesting to me, not sure if uh, it's at all intentional, but it does color things a bit, being in Genesis still. It's interesting to me that rejected brothers are sent east of the promised land, just as Cain went and dwelt east of Eden. It's interesting. But at any rate, Abraham's heir is separated from his other sons. And then verses 7 through 11, we have the burial of Abraham by Isaac and Ishmael. His uh, probably his two oldest sons here. I would say most certainly. Uh, Verse 7. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life. 175 years. Again, we're in the patriarchal days when people's lifespans uh, were not as long as before the flood, certainly, but they were still longer than now. He was 175 years old when he died. Verse 8. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah, in the field of Ephraim, the son of Zohar, the Hittite, east of Mamre, the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. Remember that from chapter 23. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son. And Isaac settled at Beer Lahai Roy, that, that uh, well down south where, where Hagar had met the angel of the Lord, where Isaac had just returned from when he met his bride, Rebekah. Uh, the well of the living one who sees me, Beer Lahai Roy. Uh, That's where Isaac settled in the south country. It's interesting that Ishmael had been sent away when he was about 14. Um, Well, maybe a little older than that. But when uh, Isaac was still little and had just been weaned. Ishmael had been sent away with Hagar, his mother. And he had actually thrived in the wilderness and become an expert archer. Um, He had learned to... um, to make a home and a life out in, in the desert. And um, here Ishmael comes back. It's, it's very clear that Abraham was uh, not very involved with Ishmael. Abraham did not choose a wife for Ishmael. Remember, Hagar, his mother, had chosen him a wife from Egypt. But now we do see Ishmael back for the funeral, for helping Isaac bury his father Abraham. Seems to be a good sign, of course. Then again, I'm sure you've been to funerals where... The whole family's there. Doesn't necessarily mean they're on the greatest terms, but they're all there. So it's hard to say. 
but at least Ishmael shows up again here for certain. And Isaac, it mentions Isaac first because he's the heir, and Ishmael, the firstborn, they bury Abraham in, in the place that Abraham had purchased as the family burial plot, the cave of Machpelah. Moving on to verses 12 through 18 then, we've, we've concluded the account of Abraham's legacy. Now there's this brief account of Ishmael's legacy. And remember, in Genesis, sections are marked off by this phrase, these are the generations of so-and-so. Uh, these are the Toledot in Hebrew of so-and-so. So we have this very brief section, verses 12 through 18 now, about Ishmael. The brief account of Ishmael's legacy. So reading starting in verse 12. These are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar the Egyptian, Sarah's servant, bore to Abraham. These are the names of the sons of Ishmael, named in the order of their birth. Nebaioth, the firstborn of Ishmael, and Kedar, Adbiel, Mibsam, Mishma, Duma, Massa, Hadad, Tima, Jitur, Nafish, and Kadima. These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names, by their villages and by their encampments. Twelve princes, according to their tribes. These are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years. He breathed his last and died, and was gathered to his people. They settled from Havilah to Shur, which is opposite Egypt in the direction of Assyria. He settled over against all his kinsmen. And that's the brief account of Ishmael's legacy. Uh, but some things are called out here as it lists the fact that that Ishmael fathered 12 sons and each of them were a prince of their own uh, people group. And as it mentions the fact that he settled over against all his kinsmen, it could be speaking of the direction in relation to his kinsmen, but there's also a sense of maybe being in defiance of or aloof from the rest of his kinsmen too. Um, all those things are fulfilling promises God had made to Hagar and to her son Ishmael and to Abraham about Ishmael. Uh, to Abraham, God had said, Genesis seventeen twenty. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes and I will make him into a great nation. And that's exactly what happens here. Uh, Genesis 16 chapter before that uh, verses 10 through 12 the angel of the lord said to hagar when she was pregnant with ishmael i will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude and the angel of the lord said to her behold you are pregnant and shall bear a son you shall call his name ishmael because the lord has listened to your affliction he shall be a wild donkey of a man uh, a wild donkey who would who would sort of wander on its own that was the picture his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. And so again, here it, it reiterates, he settled over against all his kinsmen. It's interesting that this phrase that's only used for very few people in the Bible, um, that he was gathered to his people, this is used for Ishmael. Um, I don't, I'm not certain what to make of that because uh, people debate exactly what this phrase is referring to, that someone was gathered to their people. It certainly re refers somehow to the afterlife, the way it's used. Either it's a general reference to following his ancestors into the next life, 
Or maybe it's an indication that Ishmael shared Abraham's faith. And so he went to dwell with God's people in paradise. People disagree about this, and it's fine. Um, it's difficult to say for sure, though Genesis 21.20 did say about Ishmael when he was on his own that God was with the boy. could just be God's common grace helping him out, or perhaps there was more to that. Uh, but what we do know is that God's covenant inheritance for Abraham did not pass to Ishmael, but to Isaac. It's through Isaac that God's holy nation of Israel would come, and through them, the Savior. So, Ishmael may or may not have shared in the covenant of grace, in salvation, but we know that the old covenant as such was given to Isaac, and Isaac's son, Jacob. Um, as it lists his sons here, and it says these are these are um, names of his sons and by their tribes, etc., it seems that these sons gave their names to a lot of places in northern Arabia, and I won't go into all that right now. Um, there are different oases and places that seem to have gotten their names. <clears throat> but the general idea is Ishmael's descendants spread way out, all the way from sort of the northern Sinai Peninsula near Egypt to uh, farther over in northern Arabia. They were a nomadic people. They... Uh, uh, there's probably something to the fact that many Arab peoples today claim Ishmael as an ancestor. Uh, it also seems from the rest of the scripture account that Ishmael's people mingled, mixed with other people already there. Uh, whether it's Keturah's sons or uh, other, other people from, that are already nomads in the Arabian area. Well, so much for the physical offspring of Abraham who did not receive his inheritance. They received many good things on this earth, but they were not the chosen nation with whom God's old covenant was made, the nation through whom would come the Savior, the great offspring of the woman who had crushed the serpent's head. In fact, people like the Ishmaelites and the Midianites, remember Midian from Keturah? People like the Ishmaelites and Midianites, they get a somewhat shady character after this in the Bible. If you remember where they show up. Um, now, some good things are said about Midian. Moses found refuge in Midian when he fled Egypt. He married the daughter of Midian's priest, Jethro, which seems to indicate that some of these offspring of Abraham remembered Abraham as God. That seems clear. But besides that, beyond that, um, a lot of bad things are said about the Midianites and the Ishmaelites. It was the Midianites who joined the Moabites in hiring Balaam to curse Israel and in seducing Israel to immorality and idolatry. Before that, it's Ishmaelites, who are also called Midianites, that buy Joseph from his brothers and sell him as a slave in Egypt. Later, the Midianites oppress and pillage Israel until God raises up Gideon to put them to flight. So it's just interesting that um, they... they um, just because they're from Abraham doesn't mean they're always the good guys later on. And of course, this theme will repeat itself with other descendants of Abraham, too. And yet, one final note about these people groups and how they're used in Scripture. When the Lord himself comes as that Savior to redeem Jacob and glorify Zion, prophets like Isaiah declare that the rest of Abraham's offspring will be drawn 
to the offspring of Isaac and Jacob and will share in their gospel light. Uh, Isaiah 60 speaks of that day in very picturesque terms. When the, right after saying that a redeemer will come to Zion to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, God will put his spirit upon the offspring of Jacob. Then it says, Isaiah 60, verse 1, to Zion, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see, they all gather together, they come to you. Your sons shall come from afar, and your daughters shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant, your heart shall thrill and exult, because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you, the wealth of the nations shall come to you. And then it mentions some of these peoples that came from Keturah and Hagar. A multitude of camels shall cover you, the young camels of Midian and Ephah, Midian and his son Ephah that were mentioned here in Genesis. All those from Sheba shall come and other people from Keturah. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. All the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered to you. The rams of Nebaioth shall minister to you. They shall come up with acceptance on my altar and I will beautify my beautiful house. Again, we just heard about Nebaioth and Kedar. They were the first two sons of Ishmael. The idea is even the Ishmaelites will bring pleasing worship to God in that day. Even those who are far off, who, have, who are not part of the covenant of God with Israel, they'll be drawn to Israel's light as God's own light rises upon them. So there's gospel hope for everyone. But there we have to, to set aside um, the account of Abraham and the account of Ishmael. We move on to Isaac, verses 19 through 28. The opening account of Isaac's legacy. So here Moses backtracks to a time actually before Abraham's death. But now he's telling Isaac's story, not Isaac's story, not Abraham's. First of all, verses 19 through 21. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. So here in this opening account about Isaac, we have the conception by Isaac's barren wife. Verse 26 later will indicate that Rebekah was barren for about 20 years. That is, from marriage until childbirth. It was about 20 years. And here, though it's not the same miracle in the same sense as, as Isaac was when his parents were completely past the age of childbearing, yet here Isaac experiences something akin to the crisis of his own father and mother. They had to believe God when faced with a barren womb, Sarah's barren womb, and now so do Isaac and Rebekah. God wonderfully provides Rebekah for Isaac. They're happy. It says he loved Rebekah. But 20 years, no children. Isaac, it's through Isaac that God had promised to 
give Abraham descendants as, as numerous as the stars of the heaven and the sand on the seashore. But 20 years, no children. So Isaac prays. Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And it says the Lord granted his prayer after 20 years. And Rebekah, his wife, conceived. But then this leads into something very interesting. Verses 22 through 26. The struggle between Isaac's twin boys. The struggle between Isaac's twin boys. Verse 22. The children struggled together within her. The idea is back and forth fighting inside the womb. (laughs) The children struggled together within her. And she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? If God's finally answering my prayer, why do I feel like I'm being ripped apart inside? Something is wrong in my womb. So she went to inquire of the Lord, the text says. Verse 23. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. But notice they weren't identical. Verse 25. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. The struggle between Isaac's twin boys. God answered Isaac's prayer. In fact, he didn't just give them one son, but two. But then there's there's this highly unusual thing happening in in. Rebecca's womb and, and ladies, well, my wife being currently pregnant and pretty far along, we certainly are thinking about these sorts of things. Sometimes with just one child in the womb, the mother wonders what is going on down there. What is that baby doing? <laughs> but there's two and they're not getting along. God allowed this unusual situation because he wanted to tell Rebecca something about her sons before they were even born and about the nations that would come from her two sons. Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older, contrary to all the laws of inheritance and the the customs, I should say, the older shall serve the younger. But they're twins, so they're not that much old divided by age, but still there will be one who comes out first. (laughs) He's the older. The older shall serve the younger. And then they're named according to things that are observed about them as they come out, as they're born. One comes out, the firstborn comes out red, and apparently a lot of hair. And uh, ever after this, uh, that doesn't change. He's a hairy man. So much so that later on, if when Jacob has to fool his dad who can't see anymore and make him think that he's touching Esau, well, this is Rebecca's idea. Rebecca puts on goat skins on Jacob because he has to be hairy. 
so Esau is, is red, probably referring to the red color of his hair. And um, uh, his body reminded them of a hairy cloak. Wow. Um, don't know exactly what that looks like, but it must have been something. So he's called Esau. And then Jacob comes out grabbing his brother's foot, his heel. And um, so, so let's talk about those names a little bit. This actually, this birth actually happened about 15 years, apparently, before Abraham died, if you compare the accounts. The word for red in Hebrew gives Esau his other name, Edom. I'm quoting Steinman here. Esau's covering of hair is a play on words with his eventual home, the mountains of, Se- of Seir, uh, which is close to the word for hair. Um, some people can't figure out how Esau is connected to this idea of red and hairy. Other people say it is sort of a word play, but it's complicated. So we'll just leave it there. It's complicated, but somehow Esau is a word play with him being red and hairy. Uh, but then Jacob. Jacob, that name has the same consonants as the Hebrew word for heel. Um, but, and I, I kept saying, oh, this, is this right? But yeah, you compare scholars and, and they seem to think that this was actually a name that was already common in the ancient Near East and probably actually meant may he, meaning may God, protect. But it could also be understood to mean he grabs the heel. Thus, maybe a trickster, a deceiver, a supplanter. And Steinman says all three of these ideas would be important aspects of Jacob's life. God would protect him, but often Jacob would try to live by his wits and try to get things by deceiving, by conniving. Um, The way Derek Kidner explains it is this way. He says, Jacob, an existing name found elsewhere, means... May he be at the heels. That is, may God be your rear guard, is the idea. But it also lends itself to a hostile sense of dogging another step, so overreaching, as Esau bitterly observed in 2736. Through his own action, Jacob devalued the name into a synonym for treachery. But the tenacity which was his bane secured blessing in the end. Chapter 32. So anyway, summing all that up, Esau is born ruddy, or red, as Hamilton says, and Jacob is born grabbing. He's born grabbing. We wrap up here, wrap up the text, verses 27 through 28, the contrast between Isaac's grown sons. Verse 27, when the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game. But Rebekah loved Jacob. The commentator Victor Hamilton mentions that Genesis has already given us two instances of brotherly rivalry. First there was Cain and Abel. Then there was Ishmael and Isaac. And both times the elder brother emerges in less than the desirable light. And now, again, we have Esau and Jacob. And though they both have big problems, Esau, as we'll see, is is a profane man, and he never changes that. that. He, um, 
He's a short-sighted, profane man. Jacob has sin issues too. But God chooses Jacob and God works with Jacob, transforms him by his grace eventually. But it says when the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field. His place was the outdoors. Um, He was a man on the move, a man of action. Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Now, what does that mean? And people aren't quite sure. They they speculate. They they try to figure out. Because because the word used here for quiet, it usually is talking about someone of high moral character in Scripture. But that doesn't seem to be the context here. It's contrasting it with Esau, who's always outdoors on the move. So it seems to be that Jacob is, is a more thoughtful man, um, more than his brother who's a man of action. He's, uh, it may have the idea of being sound or solid, sort of level-headed. So as Derek Kidner puts it, this is the level-headed quality that made Jacob at his best, toughly dependable, and at his worst, a formidably cool opponent. And then Isaac, it seems like Isaac probably knows of this prophecy that was given to his, his wife, Rebecca. The older shall serve the younger, and yet Isaac prefers the older. Isaac likes good, good meat. <laughs> he likes the meat that uh, his son brings in from hunting. And uh, so Isaac thinks Esau is just great. But it says Rebecca loved Jacob. Maybe this was connected to what she'd heard from God about Jacob being the one who would uh, be exalted in the end. It's hard to say, but there is favoritism here, and it'll keep showing up. And of course, that doesn't help things between the brothers. Um, Isaac is uh, sort of seems to ignore this prophecy of God, and he wants to give Esau everything, as we'll see. Rebecca thinks she's going to connive to be sure Jacob comes out on top. And this is just an ongoing dynamic. But as Meredith Klein puts it, the sovereignty of God's love for Jacob and his hatred of Esau was evidenced by its contradicting not only the convention of primogeniture, that is, of the firstborn being the important one, but also the personal preferences of the one with authority to transmit the desired office. God's choice of Jacob was in spite of his birth order, but also in spite of his father's desires. Now, that's just an introduction. We'll have a lot more to say about Jacob and Esau, obviously, as the story progresses in other weeks. But what are some applications of this account we've gone through? We've gone from Abraham to Isaac and his boys. I want to focus mainly on applications from uh, Isaac's part of the account here and Jacob and Esau. First of all, think about Rebekah's barrenness. Rebekah was barren for 20 years, and this, this seemed to just fly in the face of all God had promised to Isaac and Rebekah. And so I'd say the first application is Anticipate and trust God's omnipotent grace in our helplessness. God's omnipotent, his all-powerful grace. Trust that and anticipate that 
when you feel helpless. There was nothing Isaac could do to make his wife fertile. There was nothing Rebecca could do to make herself conceive a child. All they could do was pray. And so that's what they did. And God was glorified in that. That was that is so often the point. God intentionally leaves us in a very helpless position so that we will anticipate and trust his omnipotent grace. And so that we'll be tested. Do we really believe that despite what we can see and touch and what we can naturally expect, do we believe that despite all that, God can do what he promises? So we have to anticipate and trust God's omnipotent grace in our helplessness. Of course, the classic New Testament text on this, at least one of them, is 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10. Where the Apostle Paul says that he had received visions of heaven, whether he was there in the body or just there in the spirit, he couldn't tell. But he had received exalted information, some of which was not lawful to speak. To anyone on earth, he said. He had experienced such wonderful things from God as an apostle of Jesus Christ. But then he says in 2 Corinthians 12, 7, So to keep me from becoming conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. And no one has solved what this thorn in the flesh was. If Paul's speaking of a physical malady, maybe problems with his eyes, maybe problems resulting from all his beatings. <laughs> um, was this a personal enemy that Satan had sent, maybe one of these false apostles, to dog Paul's steps? There's lots of speculations. What this was, but somehow it was something that made Paul really feel his helplessness and weakness. And Paul says, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. That's how God loves to display his grace and his power in human weakness. So Paul says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So what is making you feel weak and helpless right now? What is reminding you that you cannot grasp God's promised blessings by virtue of your natural abilities. So particularly, uh, we could speak in general of weaknesses, but particularly things that, that challenge your trust in God, particularly in his, and what you know he has promised you. How can I have the peace of Christ that God says surpasses all understanding if I have this situation happening in my life? <laughs> How is that even possible? That's a great weakness. But the reason God has brought it into your life, one of the reasons, is so that you can truly rest in his omnipotent grace, despite your circumstances. Or how can I 
be effective in my witness for Christ when this person is in my life, when this this situation is in my life? How can I do anything for God when I can hardly move, when I have some physical affliction? How can I have joy when the things I most desire to have in this life, I'm denied? And I'm just scratching the surface, of course. But when you feel helpless, it's a reminder to anticipate and trust God's all-powerful grace. And whether in this life or in the next, God will relieve your affliction, your weakness. Again, I said, whether in this life or the next. But it's not just that end result that's important. It's the process through which God takes you to get there. It's who he's making you to be, someone who doesn't trust in themselves, who is not self-sufficient, who knows they, they can't be self-sufficient. <laughs> A second application, we could spend a lot of time on that one perhaps, but a second application is this. As we think about what God pronounced about Jacob and Esau before they were even born. Acknowledge and trust God's sovereign determinations in our stories. By our stories, I mean our lives, the the storyline of our life. We could apply this to history in general, but making it personal, we need to acknowledge and trust God's sovereign determinations in our stories. God has the right, even going earlier in our text today, God has the right to distinguish Isaac from all other sons of Abraham as the recipient of his covenant. That's God's right. They were all sons of Abraham. God had the right to just choose one. And now, with Jacob and Esau, we see God has not only the right, but the power to pronounce the destinies of Esau and Jacob. Indeed, the destinies of entire nations coming from them before Esau and Jacob were even born, much less before they even made their own decisions. This displays the fact that God... God is the sovereign maker and sustainer of all things. And his plan, his plans include every detail of history. And he always brings his plans to pass. Our individual histories and stories are absolutely determined by the eternal decrees of God. And that gives us great comfort if we belong to God as his child. We have those Things in the Psalms that even say God has every one of our days numbered. That's because he planned it out. (laughs) But this is who this God is. We are the characters on the stage of a vast drama. But the Lord God of Abraham wrote that drama. So we need to acknowledge and trust God's sovereign determinations in our stories. God isn't like people's ideas of him so often. They're more comfortable ideas of God that he's just, he's, he's like us, only bigger and better. <laughs> and that uh, 
we kind of interact on a level playing field somehow with God, even though he's much greater than us. No, God's not like that. Listen to Isaiah 46. You can turn there if you'd like. Isaiah 46, verses 3 through 11. God contrasts himself with the stupid idols, the stupid false gods that his people are tempted to go after. Isaiah 46, verse 3. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been born by me, that is carried along by me from before your birth, carried from the womb. Even to your old age, I am he, and to gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made and I will bear. I will carry and will save. To whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we may be alike? Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver in the scales hire a goldsmith and he makes it into a god. Then they fall down and worship. They lift it up to their shoulders. They carry it. They set it in its place and it stands there. It cannot move from its place. If one cries to it, it does not answer or save him from his trouble. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. If you don't want to acknowledge and trust this God, who is truly in control of all things, and who planned everything out from before time began, if you don't want to acknowledge and trust this God, this God who makes and fulfills his own sovereign determinations, then you don't really want the true God. You want an idol. And an idol, by definition, is fake. You don't want to deal with reality. It is a, as we'll say in a moment, it is a awesome, an awesome and a wonderful thing to really come to grips with this and to love this God. That's a wonderful thing. But you have to acknowledge him for what he is first. Paul wrestled with how this had a bearing on things very dear to his heart. How this meant that God was in full control of the fact that most of his own kinsmen would not believe the gospel. So we go to Romans 9. I do ask you to turn there. Romans 9. Where Jacob and Esau come up. Paul sorrows over the Jews who would not believe the gospel. He says, Romans 9, 1, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites 
And to them belong the adoption, that is the old covenant status as sons of God. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But then Paul has to fall back on God's word on the matter. Verse 6, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. It's not as if the problem is that God just can't get the Jews to believe when he, when he wants them to. So he's just, so this is a frustrated God not able to accomplish his purposes of salvation. That's not the problem. He says, it's not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but... Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He reflects even there on God's sovereign choice of Isaac over Ishmael in terms of the covenant. Verse 8, this means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, the purpose of his choice, his selection, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, here he quotes Malachi chapter 1, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And Paul knows the objection that's coming. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, the, the Pharaoh who opposed Moses in the Exodus. The scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? If God's decrees always come to pass, and that includes our choices, then why does God find fault with us? Because we're not resisting his will then, are we? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and the other another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy? But she has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Now, Paul will go on to say a lot more things about God's plan as it involves the, the natural Israel. But right here, and, and there's a lot of deep stuff here, no doubt. But right here, Paul is saying, God has the right to choose some and pass over others. He made us. And furthermore, considered as sinners that we are, we don't deserve 
God's grace. We don't deserve a pardon for the crimes we really have committed. (laughs) There's no, no injustice in God here, but he has the right to be gracious to whom he chooses to be gracious, to lavish a gift upon whomever he wishes. Gifting us even with the ability to be freed from our natural sinful inclinations so that we listen to the gospel, we believe it. But, as I said, there's, there's much more we could go into here, but here's the bottom line. If God is the omnipotent king, then he is in charge and we are not. He owes us nothing. And so when he lavishes us with grace, as he did to Jacob, what can we do but praise him for it? It's not for us to question our maker. That leads me to the third and last application. Let me review where we've gone so far in application. First of all, we have to anticipate and trust God's omnipotent grace in our helplessness. Second, acknowledge and trust God's sovereign determinations in our stories. And now as we think about the fact that God has chosen some to eternal life, We need to acclaim and trust God's freely electing love in his son. When we hear about the fact that those who believe have been chosen by God so that they will believe in Christ, we simply need to praise him for that and trust his choice. You know, sometimes when God has chosen to especially bless someone, They despise his love. They despise his loving choice of them. They think very little of it. Because they aren't thinking about the fate of those whom God has not so graced. That was Israel's problem. Malachi chapter 1 verse 2. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. And here he's referring not just to the men, but to the nations that came from them, Israel and Edom. I have laid waste to his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Do you perhaps think very little of the fact that God has loved you enough to give you the gospel and to bring you to faith? Are you ungrateful? We all often are, too often. Don't despise the great privilege that if God has chosen you. 2 Thessalonians 2.13, Paul says, But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, Because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the spirit and belief in the truth. To this, he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. What can we do but thank God that he loved you before you were even born? You say, wow, 
I wish that God had chosen me to salvation. Maybe that's what you're saying right now. I really wish God had chosen me. Well, friend, if you truly desire this salvation, it is freely yours. If you really desire to belong to God, it's yours for free. Come to Jesus and take it. Only those God has chosen and drawn to himself can desire such things. Otherwise, wicked sinners such as we are, we would never desire such holy things. We'd never desire a relationship with God. But, on the other hand, if that's not what you're saying, if you do not desire cleansing from your sin and eternal life with the Holy God of Heaven, if you don't want that, there's a problem. And you need to realize your desperate situation. You're commanded by God to repent, which means to change your mind and heart, to turn away from your own way of doing things and your hatred of God, and your hostility towards Him, and to turn to God through the Gospel. That's repentance. And it's a command by God that you repent. See, we have to keep two things in mind at the same time. On the one hand, God's detailed determination of all things, well, that's His secret, mysterious work, which we just have to believe Him when He tells us about it. But we finite and fallen creatures, we can't comprehend that. Because he's God, and we're not. That's entirely beyond us. We have to simply accept what he tells us in that subject. But on the other hand, one thing we can and we must comprehend, and that is our rejection of our righteous creator, that's our own fault. It comes from our heart. It's our uncoerced decision, and we will be held accountable for it. So don't be like, don't be like villains who right in the middle of their lines in the play, they're being all evil and wicked. But then they start blaming the scriptwriter. Well, I don't want to do all these bad things, but the scriptwriter made me do it. As if they weren't really evil characters. Or like we read in scripture, don't be like clay pots who accuse the potter of wrongdoing. You're out of your league. That's none of your business to figure out God's secret plans anyway. He tells you what you ought to do, and you're responsible to do it. Repent and believe the gospel. So I'm going to finish by quoting two preachers greater than myself. First of all, Charles Spurgeon, pastored in London in the 1800s. He, he addressed these sorts of issues this way he says but there are some who say it is hard or meaning it's harsh for god to choose some and leave others now i will ask you one question is there any of you here this morning who wishes to be holy who wishes to be regenerate to leave off sin and walk in holiness yes there is says someone i do then god has elected you But another says, no, I don't want to be holy. I don't want to give up my lusts and my vices. Why should you grumble then that God has not elected you to it? For if you were elected, you would not like it, according to your own confession. If God this morning had chosen you to holiness, you say you would not care for it. 
Do you not acknowledge that you prefer drunkenness to sobriety, dishonesty to honesty? You love this world's pleasures better than religion. Then why should you grumble that God has not chosen you to religion? If you love religion, he has chosen you to it. If you desire it, he has chosen you to it. If you do not, what right have you to say that God ought to have given you what you do not wish for? Supposing I had in my hand something which you do not value, and I said I shall give it to such and such a person, you would have no right to grumble that I did not give it to you. You could not be so foolish as to grumble that the other has got what you do not care about. According to your own confession, many of you do not want religion, do not want a new heart and a right spirit, do not want the forgiveness of sins, do not want sanctification. You do not want to be elected to these things, then why should you grumble? You count these things but as husks. And why should you complain of God who has given them to those whom he has chosen? If you believe them to be good and desire them, they are there for thee. God gives liberally, generously to all who desire. And first of all, he makes them desire, otherwise they never would. If you love these things, he has elected you to them and you may have them. But if you do not, who are you that you should find fault with God when it is your own desperate will that keeps you from loving these things? Your own simple self that makes you hate them. Suppose a man in the street should say, what a shame it is I cannot have a seat in the chapel to hear what this man has to say. And suppose he says, I hate the preacher, I can't bear his doctrine, but it's still a shame I have not a seat. Would you expect a man to say so? No. You would at once say that man does not care for it. Why should he trouble himself about other people having what they value and he despises? You do not like holiness. You do not like righteousness. If God has elected me to these things, has he hurt you by it? Ah, but say some, I thought it meant that God elected some to heaven and some to hell. That is a very different matter from the gospel doctrine, Spurgeon says. He has elected men to holiness and to righteousness and through that to heaven. You must not say that he has elected them simply to heaven and others only to hell. He has elected you to holiness if you love holiness. If any of you love to be saved by Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ elected you to be saved. If any of you desire to have salvation, you are elected to have it. If you desire it sincerely and earnestly. But if you don't desire it, why on earth should you be so preposterously foolish as to grumble because God gives that which you do not like to other people? End of quote. That was a long one. But do you get what he's saying? The second and last preacher I'll quote is it's a much shorter quotation, but it's a much better preacher than Spurgeon. It's Jesus Christ. John chapter 6, verses 35 through 40. Jesus said to the crowds that had come to him, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Meaning all the Father has chosen to give to the Son as his people. All those people will come to Christ in faith. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. 
For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Be in awe of God's choice and God's sovereign determination of all things, including who is saved and who isn't. Be in awe of that, but don't try to figure it out beyond what God's revealed. Just obey God and trust him. Come take the bread of life. Look on the Son and believe in him, and you have eternal life, and you will be raised from the dead one day by Jesus Christ to eternal life. That's God's promise. Act on God's promise. Don't try to figure out things that are way beyond a creature to understand. Believe in Christ as Lord and Savior. Give yourself to him, not saying, I want fire insurance, but that's all. Give yourself to Jesus and you'll be saved. Let's bow together in prayer, shall we? Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that it will have its effect for blessing and not for cursing on us who have heard it. Help us to trust you in all your sovereign glory and to live by faith in you, knowing that despite what we can sense in our lives, despite what we can see, we know that you are great and you are good. And you work all things together for good to those who love you, for you've called them according to your purpose and your plan. We do ask for those without Christ that they would that they would not try to barter with him, that they would not treat him as an equal with whom they can negotiate. Help them to simply trust him and thus bow before him, cling to him in faith. Help them to trust your promises that whoever comes to Christ will never be cast out. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.